19. We'll look carefully at verses 6 through 21 and a little bit after that. But this morning I want to speak on the subject, the second coming of Christ, the, cre- the king brings his bride home, brings her into his palace. And it's a rather remarkable story. Now, over the last several weeks, we have been looking at epics in the life of Christ. One Sunday, uh, my nine-year-old Luke came to me and said that Melanie in the children's ministry had given him a children's bulletin for the worship service and kids were to count the number of times Jesus appeared in the sermon or the name Jesus was stated. And he said, Dad, I counted 55 times and quit counting after that. Now that's not a compliment to the preacher, you understand. That just makes an awful lot of sense to me. But it is a great compliment to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's worthy to be mentioned 55 times in a sermon and more. And one of those reasons happens to be that what we presently see and witness and experience is not the last word. All the trials and difficulties and miseries and rebellions and uprisings in our lives and around the world are temporary. There is coming a day when all he wants and desires will be established permanently and everything that breaks his heart and yours will be eliminated. That day is coming, and he's going to make it happen. Now, to catch us up, I want to take a moment to look at the biblical storyline. I want to quickly trace through Genesis to Revelation over the next 45 hours and um, <laughs> concentrate your attention on that for just a, um, for just a moment. Uh, the biblical storyline begins with creation. There, God created a kingdom for his son. It was more than just to give us a world in which to dwell. It was really a kingdom for his son, Genesis 1 and 2. But then there's a treason and a rebellion that takes place where Adam and Eve, who were supposed to rule the world on behalf of the king, uh, were, uh, well, were tempted and committed treason and relinquished dominion of the earth to Lucifer. That's Genesis 3. Everything in the Bible that follows that happens because of Genesis 3. Did you know that? And then the next element of the biblical storyline happens to be God puts together a plan. Uh, There's a plan to restore the kingdom, and that plan begins to unfold in Genesis 4 all the way to the end of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4. Well, God is a king, and he has a court system, laws and sentences, and because of our treason, he has sentenced us to death, capital punishment, execution, and hell. But God also loves us. God demonstrates his own love for us then through Christ. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that leads us to the next element of the biblical storyline. That is, he satisfied the sentence, but he did it through his son. He allowed an exchange to take place in the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ became the sufficient, atoning Savior of the world. And he applies that to anyone who will repent and believe. That's the story of the Gospels. We had a death sentence against us and Jesus suffered it at the cross. He was executed there, not by the Romans or Jews, but by the hand of his own father. Let that settle and don't ever forget it. Well, the father was so pleased with him, he raised him from the dead. He ascended to heaven and then he sent his churches and Christians into the world as ambassadors for Christ. And that's the next Uh, element of the biblical storyline. Churches he established as embassies, and every government has got embassies, uh, most of them do in fact, and ambassadors who offer the king's peace 
That's what we're doing, and that's the story of the book of Acts and Jude. We are now in that era. We're waiting for the next thing to happen, and that is Jesus is going to evacuate his embassies. Now, don't confuse this with the second coming. Don't confuse this with the second coming. He's going to raise us from the dead and evacuate these embassies, these churches, of the true followers of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, and I think an illusion in Revelation 4.1 uh, uh, display that. He will, he will evacuate the embassies. Now, when a government evacuates its embassies, what is it about to do? Well, that's the next item here. He evacuates the uh, embassies and the ambassadors. Uh, then he begins a war, and that's the next element of the biblical storyline. Heaven's war against traitors and the unholy trinity. There is a holy trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then there is an unholy trinity made up of Satan, the beast of the Antichrist, and the false prophet, who even after all of the unmitigated full force of judgment that God brings upon the world and all the horrific instances that we read of in the book of Revelation will still gather an army against Christ. Now, can you imagine that? But they still force themselves to gather into an army to oppose the Lord Jesus Christ. God launches an unmitigated war after evacuating his embassies against the world. And then the next element of the biblical storyline we find that at that point, Jesus Christ will return in Revelation chapter 19. Let's go to the next element. Christ owns the world, but then he takes possession of it uh, and implements his kingdom in the second coming in Revelation 19. And then the next item happens to be he restores Eden to the world. God was not displeased with Eden. Jesus judges and then he returns Eden, a new heaven and a new earth, to the world. He was not displeased with the first two chapters of the Bible. He's so pleased with Genesis 1 and 2, he's going to restore Genesis 1 and 2 to the earth, magnify it, and make it even greater than it was. Now, if I made these kinds of promises and you were tempted to send me to the loony farm, I could sympathize with you. These kinds of promises coming from my mouth make no sense. I can't deliver, but friend, Jesus is the one making these promises and he can deliver. They make perfectly good sense. Because he is risen, he is Lord, he is God Almighty, and he will perform it. Now that's where we are. We are now in the era where we are in the embassies and as ambassadors. We're waiting for him to evacuate these embassies, to launch his war, for his son to return in the second coming, which is a separate event from the resurrection. Uh, the evacuation of embassies. I want to look to this morning at Revelation 19, the second coming of Christ, when he comes and does battle with the world, finishes off the battle that he started back in chapter 6, and then begins the process of implementing the full measure of his kingdom. That's what takes place beginning in Revelation chapter 19. And I want to read just one verse here as we look at the whole chapter this morning. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. You need to get ready because Jesus will come a second time to reign in glory. Get ready for it. He's coming. And I want to look at several aspects of his second coming. Uh, first, the cause. The cause of his second coming. 
Now, before we look at that, I want you to understand something about Jewish wedding customs. It went through about a six-step process when uh, Jewish young men and women were married. There would be a family that would approach another family. The groom's family would approach the future bride's family and offer a contract and a dowry. They would pay for the privilege of marrying the young lady. And then the future groom, when he came of age and she came of age, would ask for the hand of the bride. Beloved, when it comes to you and me, that's already happened at Calvary. The father sent his son and Jesus paid the dowry to marry the church, his bride, and he did it with his blood at the cross. He is worthy to own and rule the church. And that's what Jesus Christ has done. And then he would go off for about a year and prepare a home, prepare a place in his father's home uh, in order to house his bride. Well, Jesus said what? If I, if I leave, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, in John 14. Jesus is doing that. Uh, now, he is preparing a place for us. Then the groom would visit the bride at midnight with friends. He would visit, and someone would shout as he would come in this formal procession, Behold, the bridegroom comes. We're waiting for that to happen. That, that corresponds to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Then he would carry her off and they would have a marriage supper. Sometimes it would last a week. That appears in Revelation chapter 19. And then they would leave to set up their home. Beloved, these last three elements, the groom coming at midnight, the marriage supper, and leaving to set up home is what we read of in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19 is couched in terms of a Jewish wedding. And I want you to read with me beginning in verse number 6. I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints then he said to me write Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And so this is about to take place here in Revelation 19. And what we find in Revelation 19 is the reenactment of a Jewish wedding with the bride, his church. Those who really belong to Jesus and have demonstrated it with holiness and obedience in life. Now all of those that just merely claim to know Christ and have never obeyed the Lord are not a part of it. Such is not a Christian. The Bible teaches. But those who know Jesus, follow him in acts of obedience, they are clothed, in fact, in that kind of linen in their lives. And Jesus comes to take her to his new home. Now what he does here in Revelation 19 is that he brings her to the home of his earth that he owns and he cleanses it and makes it a beautiful home for his bride. He's not like me when Michelle came to live with me in a parsonage in a Baptist church in North Texas. He is far more capable and far more worthy. And don't laugh too loud. Some of you are snickering out there and you're about to hurt my feelings. But in any case, that's what Jesus does. He makes a perfect home for his bride. And we read of that in Revelation chapter 19. So this follows the pattern of a first century Jewish wedding. So that's the cause of his second coming the king's son takes his bride home in marriage. But second, the conqueror. The cause and then the conqueror of the second coming. Now, 
the conqueror himself is the Lord Jesus Christ, and his appearance may startle some. In fact, those who think Jesus is a hippie social worker are going to pass out in just a moment. I've got news for you. Jesus is not a hippie social worker. I want you to read about who he is beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. This corresponds to the entry of a victorious general into Rome. He'd ride up the main street, and they would celebrate as he came in, and he would come in on a white stallion. Jesus comes in similar manner. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. Kings have accumulated many titles through the years, and some of them deserve, some of them not. But Jesus deserves this title. He is faithful, and if you miss that, he is true. He is true to his word, and everything he's ever promised, he will come through with every time. He is faithful and true. And in righteousness, not self-interest, not selfishness, not self-centered motives, not in fear, not in panic, but in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. This is his character, and he maintains this righteous character even under the stress of a battle mentioned in Revelation 19. And then look at his eyes. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Well, if you know anything about fire, you know fire penetrates. And that's what Jesus' eyes do. His eyes penetrate every facade. They penetrate every barrier. Jesus sees and he knows everything. He can penetrate all the way through. And so he never makes mistakes. He is never subject to faulty intelligence at all. Jesus sees it all. He knows the kind of home his bride will need as well because he has eyes that are like a flame of fire. And then look at his head. On his head were not just one crown, but many crowns. I think by this time, Queen Elizabeth has taken hers and voluntarily given it to him. And wise kings of the earth will have done so as well. And so he's wearing many crowns, some of them probably given to him voluntarily, other taken by his righteous force, taken, fr taken away from the wicked. In other words, Jesus has every crown of every nation in the world. And Revelation eleven fifteen is fulfilled here where it says that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and forever. All of the thrones, all of the crowns belong to him. There's none left to rebel. And then look at his name. He's called faithful and true, but he has a name written that no one knows except himself. There are some things we cannot explain about him. Not that we won't ever know them. In fact, we will know fully on the other side, but there's no way to articulate them from human tongue. They're just simply too wonderful, and they're simply too great. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who is. And then look, the Father never lets us forget about an event in Christ's life. Verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. The Father is constantly putting before us the death of Jesus Christ. And here at Beach Haven Baptist Church, we are happy to do that. We do that in Sunday school. We do that on Sunday nights. We do that in every Sunday morning sermon because the Father does. He puts the blood before His people, the death of His Son. He never wants the world to forget that His Son died for sinners. He bled in their place. He suffered the agony and the cruelty of Calvary's cross for our sins. And so at the end of the message today, we're going to give you the opportunity to repent and believe the gospel and bow to your king. That's what the father desires. Even in this victorious moment, he puts before us the death of his son. And then it goes on. His name is called the word of God. When God says something, it looks an awful lot like Jesus. When God appeared and God showed up, he wanted us to think of Jesus. 
He defines himself as Christ. The Father and the Spirit are entirely centered on him, and we will be as well. We exalt him because the Father does. In other words, when the Father wants us to know a word about himself, he puts forward Jesus. And that's what takes place here in this text. Verse 14, and the armies, not just an army, but the armies. Well, the United States has an army. Jesus has armies, plural. He's a general. He is an admirable, uh, admiral. The armies in heaven are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and they follow him on white horses. They too are victorious. And then look at his mouth. This is a hard thing to imagine in verse 15, but this is exactly what happens. A sword goes out, a, a, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King above all kings, if I can paraphrase. Lord above all lords. The ultimate king above all kings and the ultimate Lord above all lords. Now did you notice this, this, um, coll- these, this collective set of words? Armies, sword, strike, rule, iron, fierceness, wrath, king, Lord. What conclusions do you draw from that? In this passage, in this event, Jesus Christ is not come to save. He's already done that. In this passage, he comes to judge. And what he is attempting to do, and he's going to be very perfect and thorough and efficient at it, is that he is cleansing the earth of all evil and moral pollution and unbelief. That his bride may have a spotless home. And he will not settle for less. Now somebody may whine and complain and say, well, I have a problem with that. I have a problem with all of this war. I have a problem with swords. I've got some difficulty with it. Well, let let me respond in one of three ways. And I I appreciate people being sensitive to these kinds of things. I do believe that in heart, at the very least, we need to be pacifist in heart. Morally, I don't think it's justifiable when the innocent are threatened. But in heart, we do. We need to be peacemakers. But ladies and gentlemen, at this point, Jesus Christ is done making peace. He's making a home for his bride, is what we find here. Well, I have a problem with that. Well, let me respond in three ways. Number one, are you disconnected from reality? I don't mean to insult you, but here's what I have found. Most people who complain about the violent passages in the Bible are people living in comfort. Not those who are suffering and victimized at the hand of of the brutal. Now that leads me to a second thing. D.A. Carson writes this, Christians in parts of the world where there is a lot of persecution, violence or suffering, have no difficulty understanding sections of scripture like this. You meet Christians in southern Sudan or Iran and they instinctively understand the point of what's taking place here. They understand. Beloved, I can no more complain about the violence in this passage and the celebration of it than I can complain about allied forces 
wiping out Nazis guarding concentration camps and killing Jews. I can't do it. And I never will complain. In fact, for the United States not to go after the Nazis in World War II would have been a highly immoral act. So if you've never suffered, you might have a problem with this passage. But if you're a victim of suffering, you get the point. And that's one of the wonderful things, uh, wonderful opportunities I had teaching so many international students at Southwestern Seminary. We had 400 international students, more than 10% of our population on the campus. And many of them were from Nigeria. Southern, northern Nigeria, Muslim-dominated and radical. Southern Nigeria, Christian, dominated by Christians. And those in the north were killing and burning and pillaging and making life difficult for Christians in the north. I had students from the north. They didn't complain about the difficulties there. Instead, they intended to return to the north as missionaries and evangelists. You see. They did not live in comfort. And most of our African students would come and leave their families there. Sometimes for seven years at a time. Our Korean students usually brought their families. But our African students stayed, kept their families there in the midst of persecution and difficulty, and they did not complain. They got the point here. And it's usually comfortable Americans and Europeans who stumble over passages like this. But those south of the equator who are struggling and suffering persecution and violence get the point. So that's why I ask you, are you disconnected from morality? Have you ever sat down face to face with someone whose limbs have been severed? by a machete because a jihadist wielded it simply because of their faith. Let's connect to the reality and the suffering and the injustice of the world and then we will appreciate passages like this. The third thing I would say is you have to understand the character of the folks that are mentioned here that are wiped out and stri stricken. They are like the fans who write letters every year applauding the murderer Charles Manson. They are like the women who send him marriage proposals almost daily. Have you ever heard of the term helter-skelter? That's related to Charles Manson and the murders on the West Coast years ago and the mass murders in which he engaged. He's been resting in a Florida prison, a couple of prisons, I believe he's in Florida now. I'm not real intense about keeping up with Charles Manson, like some. But the truth is, he gets marriage proposals. This is the crowd we're dealing with here in Revelation, Revelation chapter 19. And it's immense, is what it is. So let's keep this in context and appreciate the point that is made here. There is a con conquest here in this text. Uh, the, the truth, or this is the conqueror. Uh, that leads me to the third point here. The conquest of the second coming. I want to look at the scope of the conquest. When Israel went into the promised land, it left an awful lot of Canaanites who became a stumbling block and thorn to them later. But here in this text, Jesus leaves no one. The, con the scope of the conquest is massive. Verse 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, now watch this, to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heaven. Now I think these birds have probably multiplied because of the flesh that has been destroyed thus far in the book of Revelation. But there's more to come. Come and gather together, they say to these vultures. Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains 
The flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. This happens to be the scope of the conquest. And then there happens to be the, the speed of the conquest. When Israel came into the promised land, it took them years to take possession of it. That's not what happens here, beginning in Revelation chapter 19, verse 19. Read this verse and please buckle your harness before you do. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured. Did you notice here in the text the lengthy description of the conqueror? Jesus Christ. We have spent verses 11 down to verse 16 describing in detail the appearance, the work, the worth, and the rule of Jesus Christ. I want you to read verse 19 and 20 with me again. I'm afraid you didn't get it. Look here. I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to, uh, to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured. Even in the quickest of wars and the most efficient of wars, there are usually shots that are fired. Jets will launch missiles. Tanks will launch shells. There is often a need for a ground force. Ladies and gentlemen, none of that appears here. The unholy trinity gathers the armies of the earth to fight the king, and then they're all captured. There's not a single shot fired that takes place in this text. Uh, now, they're destroyed, don't misunderstand me, but there is no elongated war. There's no protracted conflict here at all. Such is the power and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is free, He is sovereign, He reigns, and He can capture. And that's what He does in this text. Then there is the standard of how He rules. It goes on, in verse 20, the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence. That leads me to conclude not everything supernatural comes from God. The unholy trinity works miracles, wonders, and signs. By which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, which I don't think is any particular item except emphatic humanism and secularism. I'll explain that at a future date. And those who worshipped his image, these two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Unlike many rulers of the earth, Jesus judges with righteousness. The punishment is appropriate to the crime. Unlike any of the rulers of the universe and world, Jesus judges with perfect and complete knowledge. He was there when all these crimes took place because he's everywhere. He saw all of them happen because he knows everything. He has all power to execute judgment. And this is the conquest. In other words, beloved, Jesus shows up on the earth like he owns the place.
Well, we've looked at the cause and the conqueror and the conquest. I want to look at the fourth item here, and that is the conversion of the second coming. In 1953, with the rise of the Cold War between the West and the East, Winston Churchill asked a clergyman, Minister, is there any hope? And I ask that question of you today. For time immemorial, human hearts have thirsted and hungered for justice and purity for happiness and prosperity, for peace of mind, peace of life, peace of relationships, and peace between nations. Is there any hope? Well, if that's your heart, I've got good news for you. What we find here in the balance of the book of Revelation is a fulfillment and the full measure of what Jesus previewed in the Gospels. The healing, the peace, the love, the harmony, that came about because of the ministry and the work of Jesus Christ in the Gospels were appetizers for the earth. The full course and feast happens here, and he's going to bring it to pass. This is why he did what he did in the Gospels. He was pointing to a future conversion of the earth. So the Gospels are the appetizers, chips and salsa, if you will. Revelation 20 through 22 happens to be the force, the, the full force of the kingdom of God. So what I've got to say to you is this. Israel wanted a political kingdom, and they were not wrong to want that. Where they were wrong was the timing of it. Jesus Christ, beloved, is not coming and returning in the second coming to take sides. Jesus Christ is returning a second time to take over. And he shall reign forever and forever. He's coming again. And there is a wonderful conversion that takes place at several levels here. The bride, the church, benefits from a conversion. There is a conversion of presence. Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Describe that wonderfully. But I want to appoint your attention to just uh, verse number 3. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, which is what he's always wanted. That was his intent in Genesis 1 and 2, and he fulfills it here in verse 3. The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them, and he shall be their God. He has cleansed the earth. He's cleansed it all, and it is now as worthy of his full manifest presence as the temple, and more so Garden of Eden, and even more so the throne where he sits now. The earth shall resemble the temple, it shall resemble the throne, it shall resemble the Garden of Eden and be so worthy of his presence he will dwell with his people never to leave again. No more distance, there will be his presence. And then in verse 4, there are some things that are absent. And here the word no takes on wonderful positive meaning. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things, the former afflictions shall pass away. Amen. No becomes a wonderful positive word. And then in verse 8, look how he purifies the whole earth. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. He shall cleanse it all. Now, if Jesus allowed those in verse 8 to rest in his kingdom, what in the world would they do with this kingdom? Can you imagine what the thieves would do with the kingdom? Well, beloved, in the kingdom, you'd have to lock your doors at night. 
What about the murderers? Well, we could not walk freely on the streets of the kingdom at night. In other words, they would do with his kingdom what they've done to this earth. Can you imagine hearing profanity in that kingdom? Can you imagine folks not worshiping and honoring Christ as King and Lord as they do today? He's going to cleanse the earth. And so there is a conversion of presence. Then she gets a conversion of space. Revelation 21, 9 through 17. But verse 16 is what I want to draw your attention to. The city, it becomes a city, is laid out as a square or a cube. Its length is as great as its breadth, so it's a cube. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. And so the kingdom, the future kingdom, becomes a marvelous city as a control center where the king reigns. Do you know how big this is? If you were to travel from Athens, Georgia, to Denver, no, Denver, they're too high to know we're there, to Albuquerque, New Mexico, from Athens to Albuquerque, New Mexico, or El Paso, Texas, you would have the length. And then from there, up a couple hundred miles above the border of Canada, and then over to Ontario and back down to Athens, that happens to be the dimensions of this great city. But then it is a cube. So it is as wide as it is long and is as high as it is wide. The king is capable of building that kind of city and what a marvelous representation of the, magnanim uh, of the magnanimous nature of his grace and how far and broad-reaching it is to those who will repent and believe the gospel having humbled themselves before the king. There's a conversion of space and then there's a conversion of work, chapter 22, verse 5. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. They shall do in the new kingdom what Adam and Eve were to do in the first one in the garden. They shall reign and rule. There is no image here of being dressed in uh, unusual clothing with a halo and a harp. There's none of that here. Oh, there's plenty of music. And it's done very well, don't misunderstand me. But we take on an administrative role in the kingdom. We become royal ambassadors for Christ. We get to rule with him. And he trusts us enough to be co-rulers or vice-rulers with him. Let me ask you something. Have you ever wanted to go to Washington and straighten that crowd out? Have you ever wanted to go to the White House and give them a piece of your mind in the Oval Office? Have you ever disagreed with a Supreme Court decision and wanted to straighten it out? Beloved, here's your chance. This is your opportunity. For those who know the Lord Jesus, they have a conversion of their work. In other words, it becomes a new creation like anyone who repents and believes the gospel. When we repent and believe the gospel, we become a new creation in Christ on an individual level. That is a preview of what he will do with the whole earth. And the whole world. It reminds me of the story of the fellow who had a real hard time with alcohol. And he struggled mightily with it. And so his family just had a few sticks of furniture in his home, in their home. And they were clothed in rags. And they uh, hardly had any food in the home to eat. He would get his paycheck on Friday and blow it over the weekend and give his wife a few pennies on Sunday night. Well, one day someone told him of Jesus and his love. And he repented and believed the gospel, having humbled himself before Christ. And he was thrilled and excited for the Lord. And uh, in fact, sometimes in services, in these staid, stiff, somber services in his church in England, he would just shout hallelujah and praise the Lord. And one Sunday after church, a preacher met him 
a guest preacher did after the service and said, tell me your story. He said, I was having a rough time. And he told him about his alcohol problem and the poverty that he thrust his family into. And he told him how someone led him to Jesus and he came to know the Lord and how the Lord changed his life. He said, but it hasn't been easy. I lost some friends at work. They would make fun of me for following Christ and they would ask me early on difficult questions about the Bible, like where did Cain get his wife? And I told them, I don't know. She's good enough for Cain. She's good enough for me. And then uh, how did Jesus turn water into wine? Well, that day they asked me that question. I was frustrated and I just said to them, I don't know how Jesus turned water into wine, but in my life, he turned liquor into groceries and furniture. And beloved, I'm telling you, that's what Jesus Christ can do in a life, and he shall do it with the whole earth. He shall do it with all and eliminate everything that does not conform to his will. When Michelle and I were married, she moved into our parsonage in North Texas. We lived really in an idyllic setting. We were on a ranch in a parsonage donated to the church in a small white frame house seven miles outside of a town of 3,000 people. And the road was a quarter, three quarters of a mile off the main road, the driveway was, excuse me. So we had to drive three quarters of a mile off of a farm road back to our home where there was a creek about 100 yards behind the house. A beautiful, beautiful, idyllic place. In fact, in the spring, the wildflowers would come up so profusely that tour buses would stop in front of the property to look at. And Michelle moved in then one day. And I know that you'll be surprised, but she wasn't terribly satisfied with how I had uh, decorated the place. <laughs> and she took over every nook and cranny of the place. In fact, she turned everything into elegant country purple something or another which was popular in that region in those days. Now, she even got into the medicine cabinet, and we divided the shelves amongst ourselves. And so I got a shelf, and she got 10 or 12. <laughs> well, after she was done with the medicine cabinet, the space on my shelf shortened to where I had half a shelf. And she wouldn't leave it alone. She rearranged that is what she did. She rearranged the whole thing there. In fact, she did whatever she wanted to with it. Well, it annoyed me, but I learned real quickly, just make her happy and don't worry about it. When Jesus Christ comes into a life, you need to understand from the very beginning, he intends to take over. He will not leave you alone until he shapes you into what he wants you. If you're considering giving your heart and life to Jesus Christ and you're not willing to bow at all, you probably need to stay where you are today. Unless you can humble yourself completely, you can't have him. He comes in and he will not leave you alone. He doesn't intend to. He intends to take over and to reshape, remodel, refashion, and replace everything that does not please him. You might lose some friends over it. You'll gain us. We'll stand by you. But we can't be with you all the time like he can. But everything in life will change because he wants you to become a preview of what he's going to do in Revelation 20 through 21. And that's what he intends to reshape you as. And so this morning, what you and I do is we invite him to come in and take over. Lord, come in and take over 
my view of myself. The scripture says in Revelation twenty two twelve, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. To the humble, that scares the daylights out of them. Because they think about the works of their emotions, the works of their thoughts. They think about the works of their hands and the good works they have not done, and they feel condemned and guilty before his presence. If that's where you are, thank God that's the best place to be if you're outside of Christ. But we change our view of ourselves. We change our view also of salvation. It is Jesus' robe who is dipped in blood. He is not not covered with the beauty of our good works. Instead, he comes draped in a robe dipped in blood which symbolizes the death that he paid where he paid for our sins. In other words, we transfer our trust from our works to him and him alone. And we do not trust ourselves and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And then we ask him to take over our view of now. What will I do with Jesus Christ now? Jesus said in Revelation 22, 20, surely I am coming quickly. And so the spirit and the bride in verse 17 say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts, come. Jesus is coming soon. So now is all we have. Now we obey him. Now we embrace him. Now we repent. Now we trust him. Now we fling ourselves at his mercy and at his feet. Now we embrace his lordship. Now we embrace his crown. Now we embrace his kingdom. Now is the time. Now is the acceptable time. Well, I'm not ready. Well, you were supposed to be when you got here. Everything where he is is ready. The gospel is ready. All the peoples of the earth are to be ready the first time they hear the good news. So hurry in our prayer time today and accelerate your repentance and faith and your humility. Get us to stand behind you and pray for you. But now is the acceptable time because he comes quickly. Father, we want to pray that friends would bow themselves fully and completely to Jesus and that they would have a sense of urgency like you do. That their heart would leap at the opportunity to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I pray that now they would do so. We pray for other friends that need to follow Jesus today and bow before his glory and set aside all the silly excuses and all the silly reasons and rationale and simply embrace the word of God and say yes to him for for baptism or church membership or to surrender to ministry or missionary service, to give one's life fully and completely. And we pray for that to happen now because he comes quickly. Now, I'm going to finish my prayer in just a moment. But what we're going to do today is we're going to sing a song. And as we sing, I'm going to ask you to step out quickly from where you are and meet a staff member here in the front. And let us help you meet your spiritual need. You tell them what you need, and they're going to help you. Perhaps you need to receive Christ today and embrace your King and come to Him. You come. Maybe God's calling you to become part of Beach Haven. You come. Maybe God has saved you already, but you need to follow Jesus in baptism. You come. Maybe there's some other need. We want to ask you to come. We want to help meet your need and serve you because he comes quickly with righteousness and victory in his hands. So may the Spirit of God blow away the fog of resistance and help you to penetrate through and say yes to your King. 
Would you quickly stand with me? Let me finish my prayer. We're going to ask you to come. Dear God, would you please gather for Jesus everything he deserves now and perform all his goodwill. And when we're done here today, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and redeemer. For it's in the strong name of the soon and coming King we pray. Amen. Come, you come. Oh, to Jesus.